Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. So I want to jump right in. I'm, I'm super excited. We're, we're coming to the end of this brand new We series today. I know this is disappointing for many of you. Some of you are super excited. You're like, great, we get to be in another book going forward. We spoke last week about your personal holiness and how your holiness matters and it'll make a difference in your relationships with others. I shared about how each of us have a crooked stick and and how much I appreciate getting to lay my crooked stick next to your crooked stick so that sometimes I can feel better about myself. But really, what we need to be doing is we need to be laying our own crooked sticks next to this straight stick that is the Word of God. And then when we do that, it's going to be a little uncomfortable, but ultimately it's for our betterment because God's way is better than our way. So we're, this is week eight for those of you that are keeping track of our series through Ephesians. And by my counting, eight weeks, seven that we finished, 10 toes that most of you have on your feet. I've got about three toes left to step on before we completely close the book on here. So y'all relax for a little bit. I'm going to do my best to step on each and every single one of them today. We learned this brand new identity that God has given us doesn't just change us. It changes the way we see not just ourselves, but how we see other people as well. Isn't that amazing? God does something in your life and it doesn't just change you but it's almost like it changes every other impact, every other relationship that you have. I love that his standard, the standard for determining if we're living according to God's standard is his word, not our culture, not our society, not our neighbors, not even what we've seen modeled in our own families. And here's what that means. If this is the straight stick, if this is our standard, then this determines the places that we go. This determines the things that we say, This determines the way that we give. This determines the way that we vote. And this determines the way that we interact with other people. Aren't you grateful that God didn't just leave us to ourselves and our own crooked sticks, but he gave us a standard, something to live by? And we've been watching Paul very strategically unpack all of these different relationships, all of these different identities, all of these different things that he's given us so that he can help us live the way that we will be living. And how Paul decides to end his letter to the Ephesians is really, really good, so relevant and so helpful. We, we talked last week, now that we know that our holiness or our ability to go and sin no more, now that, now that we know that that is, 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 is possible, we talked about last week that it affects three major relationships in our life, and that's the framework for what Paul shares with us as we wrap this out. Here are those three relationships that we're going to talk about today. He talks about the marriage relationship, the parenting relationship, and our working relationship. Now, you have to appreciate for just a second the task that the Apostle Paul has left me on one Sunday in the time that we have here today. And here's that. I could preach a series of messages on each one of those relationships. And we've been going through this, and we get to the end. We get almost to the very end, and Paul's like, and marriage, parenting, and, and who you work with. I'm like, how do you, how do, you do that? 
How do you spend all this time? So I made an executive decision, and we're going to lock the doors, and for the next four hours, I'm going to make sure that we get through this and do it. Y'all think I'm kidding. Okay, I am. I am a little bit. But before we get get fired up about how Paul addresses these three relationships to the church at Ephesus, I want to show you how crazy this is. He does the same thing. These same three relationships in this very abrupt, matter-of-fact, as if it doesn't even matter passage. Look at Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to show you. Rip the band-aid off. Paul is writing a letter to another church, just like the Ephesians. And here's what he says in Colossians chapter 3. This is verse 18 all the way through. Watch this. He says, this is what he says about your marriage relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands... Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's all he says. That's marriage to the church in in Colossae. Look what he says to children. Children, obey your parents in everything. For this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That's it. That's all he says in parenting. I'm just reading you verse by verse. Look at this, 22. Bond servants or employees. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And he just moves on. I'm like, hold up, Paul, you don't understand. You can't just drop those three relationships on us that abruptly. Surely there's got to be more that you have to say about that. Like, you're really going to ask me, the pastor, to stand up in front of a group of people and say, wives, you need to submit to your husbands, and husbands, you need to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Let's pray and close. Amen. He doesn't do that, and I'm so grateful that when we get to the church in Ephesus, he elaborates just a little bit, right? So we're going to take a minute. We're carrying on our conversation in, in Ephesians, line by line, little bit of text, but I want you to see some of the detail that he goes into, and then I'm going to unpack some of this just a little bit more. Ephesians 5. 22 through 33, again, same three relationships, a little bit more information for us. He says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his, himself, its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Verse 25, husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I know a big passage like this can be very intimidating. 
There's a lot that's in there. But most of you, if I'm not mistaken, probably got hung up on that S word that we talked about in the middle of this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Right? I don't know a man who's read his Bible in any capacity that doesn't at least know that verse right there. But I love that Paul takes a little bit of time here. And I, I want to I show you what he's talking about in the middle of this. And here's, here's what I need you to know. Don't miss the main emphasis of this text. Because I know you can read a passage like this and think, well, Paul's telling women how to interact with men and men how to interact with women in the middle of all these things and submit and respect and love and wash and all. You'll miss it. You'll miss what he's saying. Look at this. He, zero times in this passage does he refer to a man or to a woman. What did he just say? No, look at this. Six times he refers to husband. Nine times he refers to wife. We could look at this entire passage and he's saying, wives, husbands, wives, husbands, wives, husbands, husbands, wives, husbands, wives, wife, 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 husband. Look at this. Here's why I need you to understand, because if you don't get this, you're going to read a passage like that and think Paul's got an issue with men and women. But he doesn't. Paul, we're not having a conversation about men and women. This is a conversation about husbands and wives. Follow me on this. Before you were married, you were just a man. Before you were married, you were just a woman. Once you get married, the rules change. Your commitment changes. What God asks of you looks entirely different. God didn't create marriage to demonstrate how a man and a woman are to get along. God created marriage to show the world what the relationship between the church and himself looks like. Big difference. When I became a husband, I committed to God to act like Christ does toward the church. When Kayla married and became a wife, she committed to God to act like the church acts toward Christ. And Paul is saying that this relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture. It's an illustration of the relationship between Christ and the church. Look at this. When the husband is doing this correctly, it will give others an idea of how Christ loves the church. We can get hung up on the word submit all day long, but I want you to see where Paul was really placing his emphasis He was placing his emphasis on this idea of what a husband is, this idea of what a wife is. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. And here's the challenge. Our society, under the influence of the enemy, has fought making this passage or this idea of submission all about the differences between a man and a woman. Hasn't it? It's coming as, you're not going to find a television show that talks about marriage like this. Our society has gone to great lengths to show that women are smarter than men or men this and women. Paul said, I'm not even talking to men. I'm not even talking to women. I'm talking to husbands and to wives. And if this is true, if, if when the husband is doing this correctly, it will give others an idea of how Christ loves the church, that's a big, big deal. I would say it this way. It says that a wife should submit to her husband. In other words, if her husband isn't being a husband, then submission will be near impossible to her. 
So all of you men that said, wives, submit to your husbands, chuckled and and laughed, tuck your toes back under a little bit, because I'm coming for you. I'm coming for you. Look at this. What is a husband then, Pastor Don? Because if all of what Paul is saying rests on understanding of what the role of a husband is, what is a husband? That Greek word that we get husband from is actually husbandmen. It's the tender and the keeper of the vine. It's the gardener, if you will, that his responsibility was to go toward the vine in the vineyard and would tend and keep it. He would prune the things that were unhealthy. He would lift up the things that were growing well. He would make sure that it had everything that it needed. This idea of a husband is not somebody who just goes to work and provides as if nothing else is necessary. That's not, that may be what Papa did. That, that may be what society says, but that's not what happens here. That's not what a husband does. This is not an issue with submission. This is an issue with husbanding. Are y'all with me? Can I have your permission to continue forward in this conversation? There are three exits along the back, two on either side of the balcony. If you're uncomfortable, good. Let's dig in. Three thoughts on submission, and I want us to really, really get this. Here's the first one. Submission begins when agreement ends. Submission begins when agreement ends. What are you talking about, Pastor Don? Ruth Graham, this is the wife of Billy Graham. I'm sure you've heard of Billy Graham. He has spoken to and evangelized more people probably in our generation than anybody before him. She says this. This is his wife. If two people agree on everything, there's no need for one of them. It's her words, not mine. No words. Here's what I've learned about about submission and about the fact that my wife and I aren't always going to agree. It's this. I have to anticipate. I can't just go about life thinking that she's always going to agree with me. I have to anticipate that there's going to be something along the way that we disagree about. I, I have to go through life and I have to invite. Man, I can't just say, this is what we're doing. I have to come and say, hey, what do you think about this? Do you have anything you want to you speak to? I'll, I want to invite you to speak into this. I have to include her, right? Submission begins when agreement ends. Man, we don't get to say when agreement comes, now you got to submit. It's a process that gets us to that. Ephesians 5, we read this passage. Look at this. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Lots here that we could unpack. Lots here. I want to encourage wives for just a second. If you're in a marriage and your husband isn't loving you the way I'm talking about, understand this truth. He may not love himself either. He may not love himself. He may not know how to. And that'll change the way you pray. God, if he's supposed to love me the way he loves himself, I wonder if he has a hard time loving me because he can't even love himself in the middle of this. Here's what this is saying. Each of you, love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Can I tell you, men naturally communicate in a language of respect. We just do. We walk up, we have a conversation. I can have a conversation with any man in here, and chances are we're going to have this initial starting level of respect. It comes very natural to that. 
In the same way, look at this, what he's telling, what he's telling wives. Women, when, when you become wives, you're going to naturally love, right? He doesn't have to tell you how to nourish. He doesn't have to encourage you to learn how to be uh, relatable and all of that. Paul actually does something completely crazy. He flips the script and he says, when you become a husband, it's no longer about respect. It's about love and nurturing. Wives, when you become a wife, women, when you become a wife, it's no longer about just loving. You've got to learn the respect side of that. Y'all follow me so far? When they become husbands, they must learn to selfishly love. When they become wives, they must learn to communicate with respect. Because if you don't, what's at stake, Pastor Don? This illustration, this picture of how Christ and the church are supposed to relate. There's this vicious cycle that we can get into in our relationships, especially when we start talking about love and respect. There's a book, I encourage you to grab it, called Love and Respect. It handles this topic so nicely. But here's the vicious cycle. Well, Pastor Don, he's not loving me. And that's why I don't respect him. And he would say, well, Pastor Don, I get it. But if she would respect me, maybe I would love her more. And we get in this vicious cycle that if, if he would just love more, then she would respect him. If she would just respect him, he would love her. So here's my question to you, church, since you've gotten awfully quiet in here. You know what a cycle is, right? It just keeps feeding itself. It feeds itself. It feeds itself. Somebody's got to break the cycle. Somebody's got to go first. Pastor Don, are you saying that if, if he doesn't love me, I should still respect him? Pastor Don, are you saying that even if I don't respect him, that, 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 that he should still, what, what, is this, what does this look like? She doesn't respect me, so I need to love her. Who goes first? Anybody want to take a shot? Ain't nobody stepping on anything in this, in this, are they? What do we see in scripture? Let's start there. If this is supposed to be a picture of how Christ loved the church, maybe there's something we can see with what Christ did in his relationship with the church. And here's what we find. Christ initiated the church reciprocated. Christ initiated the church reciprocated. So here's what I'm telling you. Paul doesn't tell the men to go first. He tells the husbands to. Big difference. He says, just because you're a man don't mean you got to fix it. He says, but if you're a husband, then that means something. And you got to approach this differently. He tells husbands to go first. If I were to stand five or six of you up and put you in a line and then told you guys to head in one direction, who would be the leader? Who would be the leader? Whoever's in the front, whoever goes first. We, we, we know this, we, we see this often, but men, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm honest, husbands, we want to be the leader, but we don't always want to go first. What are you talking about, Pastor? I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm the first, no, no, listen, listen. I'm talking about the first to pray when something's not going the way it's supposed to. The first to come and say, hey, y'all, come here, let's pray. It's, it's I want to be the first in church. Thank you. I'll be honest with you. The number of stories that I hear about women who are saving a seat for their husband. That's not what the picture looks like. Christ initiated. The church reciprocated. How about in discipleship? Oh, I'm fine if she goes to that small group, but, but I, I, I need my evenings to relax. 
and to chill out because I work hard and I provide. Paul said nothing about provision. Nothing about, I'm glad that you're working. I'm glad that you've got a job, but I'm just telling you, men go first. Ladies, how many of you are not married? Let me see your hands. Let me see your hands. Hold them up high. Single men, look around. Kidding. (laughs) You don't want a man. You want a husband. And I think that's why marriage is so off sometimes. Because our society has us trying to figure out what a man's supposed to do. And what a woman's supposed to do. Nowadays, you don't even know the difference between them. (laughs) But he's saying, you need to be a husband and you need to be a wife if this picture that I've given you is supposed to make sense. Ladies, don't you dare go looking for a man. You need to look for a husband, somebody who's willing to go first, somebody who's willing to lead. Because there will be a moment. You can clap there. That's good preaching. There will be a moment when the two of you don't agree. And you don't want to be sitting there thinking, I wonder if he's going to go first. No, you want the kind of man that you know when we're in a disagreement, he's going to initiate because that's what he does. Because I see him do that in every other area of his life. A husband is somebody who initiates in the middle of that. Two toes left. I love... I love this passage, 526 through 27. Look at this role of a husband. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Look at that. That he might present her that, that without spot or wrinkle. How many of you have seen a classic car driving around? I mean, one that looks like it just, it's 30 years old, but it looks like it just rolled off the showroom floor. Y'all seen cars like that driving around? Somebody took care of that thing, didn't they? Yeah, they did. That's a car that's parked in the garage. It's raining today. Nope, I'm taking the beater. I'm taking the daily driver. When you've got something like that that you love and you cherish, you care for it. Something can be seen in the way that car is presented without spot or blemish, and it tells you that's a car that's been taken care of. How many of your wives look like that? Men, husbands, where somebody would look and say, that's a woman that's been cherished. That's a woman that's been cared for. Look at her confidence. Look at the way she carries herself. Look how freely she can interact with other people and be gracious. Coach Bill McCartney, founder of Promise Keeper, said this one year. I remember where I was when I heard him say it. He said, the character of a man can be found in the countenance of his wife. You want to know what I think about men? I'll tell you once I've met their wife. Here at church, we won't hire a pastor or consider anybody for a marriage or for, for any ministry position until I have an opportunity to meet the spouse. You say, Pastor Don, that's kind of harsh. What do you mean? Because if he can't take care of that garden, how can I trust him to take care of this one in the middle? This is my first relationship. 
And if you don't have any toes left, just put your fingers out. I'll step on them too. Here's a second thought on submission. Submission isn't an action. Submission is a reaction. How do you know? Because a wife will have no problem respecting and submitting to a man who nourishes her, protects her, and sacrifices for her. If we have a submission issue in your house, we probably have a husbanding issue in the house. Are y'all with me so far? Man, it got quiet. I hope this is sounded much better in my head than it, getting back <laughs> from you in the middle of this. That's not the only relationship Paul talks about. I told you I could preach for an hour on any one of these. He goes through, look at this, the very next verse, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, children, If you want to be wise, listen to your parents and do what they tell you, and the Lord will help you. For the commandment, honor your father and your mother, was the first of the Ten Commandments with a promise that was attached. You will prosper and live a long, full life if you honor your parents. Look at this. Fathers, don't exasperate your children but raise them up with loving discipline and counsel that brings revelation of our Lord. I thought it was fascinating in the middle of this conversation that the Apostle Paul doesn't address mothers. He addresses fathers. That the parenting relationship, do you think it's that Paul knows and understands how important a father is to a child's life and the child's relationship answer? Yeah, absolutely he does, right off the bat. Now listen, I know many instances, and I'm the product of one of them, with a single mama who's doing everything she can to raise her family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And I'm so grateful that for a godly mama, the Holy Spirit can make up the difference in the middle of this. But I don't want to minimize the importance of a father. And just because you're there, and just because you're paying the bills, And just because you go to work and just because they have a roof over their heads does not mean that you're being the father that God has called you to be. Verse four, fathers don't exasperate your children. Can I tell you, I think it's a whole lot more than just don't frustrate them. See, a lot of fathers today who uh, just whatever you want, just just. Just, just calm down. I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to frustrate you. Can I just tell you something? As a, as a godly father myself, I'm willing to frustrate my children. I'm willing to discipline them. And here's, here's the difference. I say this to my kids all the time. I'm willing to sacrifice your short-term happiness in order to promote your long-term health. I'm willing to do it. But here's, here's why. Here's the difference. Here's the difference. I'm not heavy-handed. I'm not just waiting for them to do something wrong. I'm coming. I see something for their future. And when they get off course from what I see for their future, it causes me to act. If you parent from a short-term perspective, you're going to discipline now because of what I see in your present. But if you parent from this kind of perspective, from the long-term perspective, I'm going to discipline now because of what I see for your future. It makes a big difference. In the middle. One of the most helpful things that I ever heard regarding parenting came from a mentor of mine, Dr. Leo Lawson. And he was talking about his boys, and they were grown at the time, and both of them incredibly successful 
Um, and he said, Pastor Don, we never had a rebellion year or a season in our life. None of my boys rebelled. Of course, now I'm, I'm you know, piquing my interest here. And I'm asking, okay, so help me. What happened? And he said, I really think it was because of the way we navigated every season that they were in. What do you mean, Dr. Leo? He said, every time they were, we, we had to talk about one season, we always talked to them about the next season as well. It, it wasn't, Dad, can I go to the movies? It wasn't just, no, son, you didn't do your chores. It was a conversation. Said, son, at one point in time, I'm going to want to trust you. And I'm going to need to trust you. And there will be a day where you leave this house and, and you don't have to come and ask me. But I'm really concerned about the maturity level that I'm seeing right now in this current season that you're in. So I'm going to say no to this current season so you can start showing me what maturity looks like. So when we get in the next season, you can go and do that. And he says, as long as I was willing to speak to the next season, my kids were okay with the current season that they were in. Those of you that have multiple children, it gets easy to try to parent them all the same. There's a reason why there's an age gap. There's a reason why there's a maturity gap. And I see parents get tired, right? They let the little one do the things that the oldest one does, and they don't have the maturity level for that. You've got to be able to see and communicate, yes, I understand your brother gets to do that. And you will too when you're in that season, but you're in this season as well. And it's a father who gives punishment with no explanation, with no revelation that exacerbates his child. Oh, I just can't wait to get out of this house when he's not telling me anymore. Instead of the child who will come and say, Daddy, help me understand. My seven, eight-year-old now came up to me last week. Hey, Daddy, am, am, I, am I showing maturity? Am, am, am I showing maturity? Can, have I shown the maturity to be able to do this? And you want to talk about just break your heart. Just asking that question alone, I'm like, man, come on, do it. But no, we've been having this conversation. I don't want to exacerbate him. So what is he saying? If exacerbating your child is the crooked stick, what's the straight stick that he's laying next to it? Ephesians 6, 4. But raise them up with loving discipline and counsel that brings the revelation of our Lord. Scripture says I'm supposed to raise my child with this discipline and this counsel, not a heavy hand. If my interactions don't reveal something about God to my children, I'm probably going to exacerbate them in the middle of that. Y'all follow me? One more thing. This is free. For those of you, we're talking about parenting and, and this, this idea. I don't, want to all, I, I don't want you to feel like you've got to be perfect because you don't. You're going to mess up. Right? One of the most freeing things I ever remember Pastor Jim LaFoon saying from, from the stage, this is my pastor's pastor, he says, every parent parents some level of dysfunction into their child. I'm like, oh, praise God, because I think I've done five or six things that are dysfunctional already in my life. And I learned this, if I can't lead by example, I can at least lead by repentance. I can at least leave, Kayla's saying amen from the front row. I can, <laughs> I can at least lead by repentance. What does that look like? It's not just coming and saying you're sorry. Many of you can't even fathom what that looks like, and that should clue you in. There may be some growth in your parenting relationship to think that it's okay to apologize and to repent to your kids. But what would it look like if you went the next step and actually showed them how your behavior differed from God's behavior? 
fathers to be able to come and say, I remember I lost my temper with my kids and I set them down. I said, guys, listen, daddy needs to repent. And I use those words. And I need to ask for your forgiveness because daddy lost his temper. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yes, daddy, we love you. Forgive me. But listen, I need you to understand that God doesn't act that way. God doesn't lose his temper with us. And I'm trying, and, and God's helping Daddy, and, and one day, hopefully, I'll be able to interact with you guys and never lose my temper, but I need you to know God can be trusted, and you never have to be afraid of him losing his temper. That's how you parent that gives counsel and discipline for the revelation of the Lord. Y'all following? This is just right in here in Ephesians, what he's, what he's saying. I sat across from a man not too long ago. We were having a conversation very similar to this, and he said, Pastor... I never had a godly father in my life. I never had that kind of relationship. I don't know how to do it. And I don't want anybody to raise their hand, but I want you to believe me when I tell you I know the people in this room. That's more people than you think. A lot more of us than you think. Can I tell you that's why God's brought you here? That's why God's brought you to a church that isn't content with you just showing up and sitting in the pew. God's brought you to a church where he wants you to get connected. He wants you to get in a small group. He wants you to show up for a work day, to be a part of a men's group. Why? Because you won't know how to do this if you don't get up next to some other men who are trying to learn how to do this as well. How did I learn to be a godly father? I didn't have one for the longest time in my life. God saw to it that I would have godly men in my life. And I guess my childhood was just that jacked up because he's given me five godly men figures in my life that I call every Father's Day and thank them for the investment that they've made into me. You don't have to have had a godly father to be a godly father. Fathers, please don't allow your lack of a godly father in your life to rob your children of the blessing of having a godly father in theirs. You may have gotten the short stick, but God has given you help in this family if you will use it. Let's keep walking through the text. I'm out of toes. We have one more relationship that Paul discusses, and then we'll pray. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8. I call this your working relationship. Those who are employed should listen to their employers and obey their instructions with great respect and honor. Serve them with humility in your hearts as though you were working for the master. Always do what is right and not only when others are watching so that you may please Christ as his servants by doing his will. Serve your employers wholeheartedly and with love as though you were serving Christ and not men. Be assured that anything you do that is beautiful and excellent will be repaid by our Lord, whether you are an employee or an employer. What kind of an employee are you? Let me ask, what kind of an employee are you? Does it matter? See, this brand new identity doesn't just change your marriage. It doesn't just change your parenting. It should also change the way that you work. Y'all with me so far in this? Men, just to show of hands, how many of you have a job? Raise your hand. Let me see. All right. Okay, of all the men raising your hand, keep your hands up. Keep your hands up. All the men with jobs are raising their hand. All the, all the married men, put your hands down. Single men, keep your hands up. I'm just returning the favor to all the, all the ladies that, that are there. Look around. You're welcome. Seriously, of the men and the women in this, how many of you have a job? 
Let me see the hands, everybody. Men, women, everybody, right? How many of you say, I spend a significant amount of my time at that job? More time than I want to at that job. Do you get paid for what you do? Yeah. You spend the majority of your waking hours at work. Could I say that in many ways, work is an exchange of one portion of your life for the ability to have the resources to live the other portions of your life? Wouldn't you consider work to be that? A big exchange in the middle? Question, does God just want part of your life? No, he wants all of your life. And that doesn't just include Sunday mornings. That includes Monday through Friday, 8 to 5 in the middle. Just this fall, you're going to hear us talk about world missions trips and many opportunities. Look at my face. I want everybody on the missions field. I do. But many of us forget that sometimes Monday mornings at 8 o'clock is the mission field that God has given you. You don't always need to spend your time going to a foreign country to be around people who don't know God to help them see what Jesus looks like. Some of you just to go clock in because your work is that missions field. Remember how God's plan for marriage was to illustrate something to the world? Same thing for your work relationship. God wants to use the way you serve him as you serve your employer to illustrate something about God to those around you. Think about this for just a second. I'll do the math for you. Most of us spend anywhere between 30 to 40 hours a week working. And most of us will work from 40 to 50 years of our life. That's 82,900 hours that you have an opportunity to share the love of Christ with somebody else. That's a big deal. That's a huge, huge deal. In conclusion, anybody have any toes left? Let me know. I just need want to make sure we're, we're there. Throughout this whole series, Paul has addressed our relationship with Christ. Paul has addressed our relationship with others, those that don't know Jesus. Paul has addressed our relationship within the church with those who do know Jesus. And now he's discussed our marriages, he's discussed our parenting, and he's discussed our working relationships. Do you see any theme throughout all of those things? Yeah, it's relationship. It's relationship. Our brand new identities are all about relationship. Christ died so that you could have one. And the enemy wants to try to do everything he can to take it from you. And how many of you know we've got to fight if we want to keep it? And I think Paul did too. And that's why he ended this passage, this entire chapter, all our weeks together. Paul summarizes in this one thing. This is his farewell to the church at Ephesus, our farewell to you. This is Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 18. Look at this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, 
having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I love this. Paul's final advice to this church, his final farewell, the thing he wants them to remember, his last words out the door is this. He said, y'all better get dressed. Y'all better get dressed. And I'm sure that you've read this verse, and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it preached this way before, and it's very clear and very plain. There is a spiritual enemy that wants to rob you from everything Christ has given you. It's spiritual. He wants to rob you, and he'll try to come at you at work. He'll try to come at you in your parenting. He'll try to come at you in your marriage. He'll try to come at you through unbelievers. He will even try to come at you through the people you go to church with. And he'll try to come at you in your identity and who you are in Christ. And Paul is saying, if you want to keep that identity, you better get dressed. You're about to fight. But don't miss this very profound truth tucked right in the middle here. Many of us just glance right over it. Look at this. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle. Stop there for just a second. To the audience of that day, to this Greek culture, this primary culture, the sport, the, 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 the sport of battle for them was wrestling. And you'd have two men strip down to their loincloths and go at each other, wrestling around and rolling on the ground. And I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. That's not what he said to do. He didn't say there's an enemy that's coming after you, that wants to attack you, that wants to take all of these things that you have now as a result in Christ. You need to strip down to your loincloths and wrestle on the ground with him. That's not what he said, is it? What does he say? Get dressed. Put on that armor. Why? Because we don't wrestle. We don't wrestle. That's not how we fight. Don't worry about the enemy coming to try to immobilize you in the middle of this. Paul's saying, we don't wrestle. You don't have to engage him on those terms. You have a sword. You have a helmet. You have a shield. You have a belt of truth around you. And some of you will get this here in just a second. You're not having to wrestle on his terms. Paul says, we get to fight on our own. We don't wrestle. And what we're walking through, what we're trying to hang on to, is very real and very, very important. But many of us are, oh, the devil's coming. Let me just take all this armor off and go in there and wrestle around with him for a little bit. And Paul's saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? You've got armor. You've got a shield. You've got a sword. You say, well, Pastor Don, I'm I'm struggling. You're not struggling. You're wrestling. Stop wrestling with that thing. Put on the armor that God has given you. Take up the sword that he's given you. Put that helmet on that you hear about when you read God's word. Take up that shield. Stop wrestling with the devil. We don't wrestle. 
And I have to be reminded of that sometimes. The goal of wrestling is to immobilize you, to pin you down. And the devil wants to do that. Some of you have been stuck way too long. Oh, I know I used to want to do something for God, but I could never do something for God now. Too much has happened. The devil has you pinned, and Paul would come to you and say, stop wrestling. You don't have to fight by his rules. Make him fight by yours. Y'all with me today? Look at this, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thank God he has given us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John would say it this way, for every child of God defeats this evil world. Not wrestles against this evil world, not struggles against this evil world. What does he say? Every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God will experience this victory, which means this. Without a relationship with Jesus Christ, there is no victory over sin. There is no victory over death. I'm going to invite you right there where you are to bow your head, close your eyes. I don't need anybody looking around. I just want you to listen to my voice. Pastor Don, how do I have that relationship with Jesus Christ? Quite simply, you must be born again. That's not my word. That's Jesus' word. He's talking to a religious man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is asking him, say, how do I, how do I see the kingdom of heaven? How do, I, how do I accomplish all these things that you're telling me? And Jesus said, you can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. And he goes on to tell him that it's a work of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer, that he awakens you to some things. What are you talking about, Pastor Don? I would say it is as simple as A, B, C. A, for the first time ever, you'd be able to admit that you're a sinner. That as a result of your sin, God, you've separated yourself from a loving and holy God. B, believe that God sent his son Jesus, who lived a sinless life, a life you could not live to pay a debt you could not pay. B, believe Jesus came just for you. And then C, confess. Confess him as Lord and Savior. It's really easy to confess Jesus as Savior when your life's a mess. But only when the Spirit does work in your heart are you able to confess him as Lord. God, your way is better. And if you're here today and you say, Pastor Don, I want to have that kind of relationship. I'm tired of wrestling with these things in my life. I'm ready to take up that shield. I'm ready to have that faith. I'm ready to use the word of God. I'm ready to let it power me and empower me to fight the devil on my terms, not on his. And I see it. And I want to pray with you today if you want to be born again, if that Holy Spirit is doing that work in your heart. I'm going to ask you from right there where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward or ask you to stand. But if you're here and you say, Pastor Don, will you pray with me to be born again today? I want to ask you to raise your hand right now so I know who I'm praying with. Let me see your hands. Thank you. I see your hand. Thank you. I see your hand. Up in the balcony. Nobody looking around. Thank you. I see your hand. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that leads you to being born again, not this specific prayer, but indicative of the fact that all of us go through Christianity. Nobody goes through Christianity alone. I want us to all pray this prayer 
together. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross you took my sin, my shame, and my guilt, and you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin to follow you with all my heart, no matter what it costs me. God is my Father. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is my helper, and heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's celebrate with all of those who raise their hands to be born again today.